0: Road, Ellsworth. 1-800-640-3515. On the wing, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., where you will hear the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org.
1: Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org.
2: It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next.
3: Most observers agree that the Copenhagen Climate Summit did not produce agreements for meaningful reduction of greenhouse gases. And without such reductions by developed and developing nations, the effects of climate change will be borne largely by the world's poor. Our program this morning, will talk with faculty and students from College of the Atlantic who traveled the road to Copenhagen and who will share their observations about what was and what was not accomplished. And we'll talk about the attempt to achieve just and meaningful agreements to cut greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change. I'm happy to welcome guests to our studio. Doreen Stabinski is a faculty member and professor of global environmental politics. Welcome to you, Doreen.
2: Thanks, Ron. Nice to be here.
3: We also have um, three students with us um, from College of Atlantic. Um, one by phone, Noah Hodgetts. Welcome to you, Noah. Thank you, Ron. Glad, 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 glad you could be here. And we also have in the studio Lindsay Britton and Matt Myrona. Mar- Very good. Um, Could each of you um, say a little bit, maybe start with Noah on the phone, um, saying how you got interested in climate issues, um, either as a student or perhaps before um, you became a student at College of the Atlantic? Noah?
4: Yeah. Well, um, you know, I've been very interested in land use planning um, and policy during my years at College of the Atlantic. Um, And, you know, obviously I've been following the climate change issue as it's evolved over the past several years. Um but I didn't I that really wasn't a focus of my studies um until um this past year when I recognized kind of the growing importance of climate change and how it was going to impact future policy decisions. And so I saw taking um I wrote the Copenhagen course with Doreen um and going to Copenhag Copenhagen as a way to educate myself about the climate change um policy debate, um, realizing that it was going to have a significant impact on the future direction of our world.
3: Thanks. How about you, Lindsay? How how did you get interested in all of this work?
5: Well, I've been concerned about climate change ever since I learned about it when I was in fifth grade. Uh Um, And so I was just really drawn to it as soon as I found out that there is the potential for a delegation of students from College of the Atlantic um, in... I think it was in October of 2008 actually that we started planning this. Great.
3: And how about you, Matt? Um, how did you get started?
1: I actually only got started uh, when I came to college. When I was in high school, I was sort of environmentally aware. Um, I didn't really know what the United Nations was, but uh, <laughs> once I got to COA, Culture of the Atlantic, um, I was kind of confronted with these new ideas and pretty excited about them. And now that I'm a fourth year there graduating uh, I'm sort of known as the Climate Kid uh, sort of unfortunately but uh, I've taken every opportunity I could to learn more about it I worked it with Congress in Washington uh, with the State Department and most recently with the Climate Action Network in Washington uh, kind of trying to jump right in uh, and go all out with these things and it's been Pretty amazing experience, also quite frustrating at times, especially at Copenhagen.
3: Sure, sure. And Doreen Sabinski, um, tell us a little bit about yourself as a, a faculty member in global environmental politics and, and uh, how you got interested. And them. maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the preparatory work that you began to do um, uh, in coursework.
2: Sure. So global environmental politics is a course that I teach every couple of years. My my own um, personal expertise is in the area of agriculture, but because um, there's a couple of major international treaties that I teach about in the course Global Environmental Politics that came out of the Rio Earth Summit, so the 1992 Earth Summit, and one of those treaties is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So I've taught about that, that, uh, that treaty for a while. It wasn't until about a year ago uh, a little over a year ago where I realized that we needed to do some more focused study um, at COA about um, looking, anticipating Copenhagen. So um, a year before Copenhagen I went to the uh, a preparatory meeting in Poznan, Poland and started the course development. So I spent about a year developing the course and preparing, figuring out how to how we were going to bring students to Copenhagen mm. and uh, what they might uh, what they might be doing when they were there.
3: Mm-hmm. And you also um uh, began to um, think about the, this this history um both about um one particular treaty but also um the background. So give us some background of how how did all this get started?
2: Sure. So um, in 1992, there people might remember that there was this huge um, international environmental summit called the Earth Summit in Rio. And in preparation for that summit, there were two main environmental treaties negotiated. One was the Convention on Biological Diversity, and the other was the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the name gives you a sense of that treaty. It's a framework convention. It provides a framing for further international action. But it's really just sort of an overarching framing treaty. And so every year, countries get together to discuss how to further implement the treaty. Um, And so those yearly meetings are called conferences of the parties. And in 1992... Well, really, the first conference of the parties after that treaty comes into force, countries realize that they haven't done enough, that it's a framework convention, but there aren't really any legally binding targets or timetables within that treaty. So that's really where the road to Copenhagen begins. um, And, well, the road continues past Copenhagen, too, obviously. (laughs) Sure.
3: Well, um, Matt, maybe you can help us with um, another piece in the the, uh, uh, stop on that journey is Kyoto. We hear about that and um, so tell us a little bit about what you've learned about where Kyoto came into the into the
1: road. Sure, Kyoto was pretty seminal landmark in the entire climate negotiation process over the past 20 years and there's really one key piece which uh, Dorian already mentioned that was the major focus and that is the legally binding commitments and so there were legally binding commitments for emission reductions in Kyoto. Um, these were specifically for developed countries and uh, the most important thing to know is that the U.S. decided not to be a part of it. Uh, The rest of the world went along with it, but uh, the U.S. could never get it through the Senate, um, which meant that we could never agree to it because all of our international treaties have to be approved by the Senate. Uh, And this has had major ramifications up through Copenhagen, and it's still a major contentious issue at the negotiations and was actually Part of the reason Copenhagen failed is because there's still this looming shadow of Kyoto in the U.S. not being a part of it and not necessarily agreeing with it, which, again, there's still these major divides that exist.
3: Mm. And how about um, um, Lindsay coming in and, and talking a little bit about why is all this important? Um, what are some of the sciences, science, uh, science findings? And um, you'll, you'll probably reference um, an international um, group that's been looking at these scientists who've been looking at this, this issue.
5: Yeah, in 2007, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in their report, found that over the last 650,000 years, uh, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere ranged from 180 to 300 parts per million, and today it's at 390. And also, the concentration of methane over the last 650,000 years ranged from 715 um, to, oh, sorry, from 320 to 390. Sorry, 320 to 790. I'm reading my notes, I'm sorry. Um, You're not reading on your hand,
3: though. You're not reading
5: on your (laughs) hand. I'm not reading off my hand. I have notes written on paper. Um, (laughs) And today it's up to 1,774 parts per billion, so it's way over what it has been historically.
3: So So generally, the science concludes that increasing population means that there's going to be increasing greenhouse gases.
5: Um. I'm not sure about that. It's just they did also find that um, in the EU, Russia and Ukraine, both their total emissions and their per capita emissions, as well as their emissions intensity, meaning
2: their emissions per unit of GDP decreased. Right. So increased population doesn't necessarily mean increased greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, It just depends on how much fossil fuel that those populations are actually burning, consuming okay. that, well, and the, the other components of greenhouse gas emissions, including nitrous oxide, how much fertilizer are they pouring on uh, their soils. I mean, those are the main greenhouse gases. So
3: it's people living and you consuming greenhouse uh, or, or uh, oil-based products. Yep. Amazing. Okay. Yeah.
2: And Good. then to add on to Lindsay, I mean, so talking about greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere, what are the consequences of that? Greenhouse gases get their name because they help contribute to the blanket of atmosphere that that helps warm the earth and as you put more of those gases in the atmosphere you make the blanket thicker and thicker um of metaphorically and allowing the average surface temperature of the globe to heat up Um,
3: so in 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 rio people were really saying we need to pay attention to this we need a framework for talking about how we start to reduce greenhouse gases Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Uh, Noah, do you want to add anything to our discussion? Um, you're kind of the the lonely voice on the phone, so I want to make sure you're you're participating. Anything you want to add?
4: Uh, no, I don't. I don't think at this point I will chime in as the discussion evolves a little okay. more. I
3: think. Well, let's talk about what was supposed to happen at Copenhagen. You know, we 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 started with um, the framework um, discussion in Rio. We we saw nations get together and agree on some reduction in greenhouse gases in in Kyoto, but the U.S. didn't participate. What was supposed to happen in in Copenhagen?
1: Yeah, it's really pretty simple. Uh, What was supposed to happen is we needed a fair, ambitious, and binding deal coming out of Copenhagen, one that was based on the science, uh, had mandatory emission reductions that were, again, based on the science, and that protected the most vulnerable countries. And we didn't get it. Uh, This is something that countries had two years to talk about, and they basically decided to keep talking.
3: And there are probably lots of reasons, but um, what, 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 what happened at Copenhagen so that we didn't get that, um, that agreement that you mentioned? Doreen, do you want to start?
2: Well, so <laughs> Copenhagen involved um, a t- the, the path to Copenhagen, the g- negotiations leading up to Copenhagen involved a two-track process. Because you had the Kyoto Protocol, um, which, as Matt said, was an agreement between developed countries for emission limitation um emission reduction objectives um, and so but the the agreement in Kyoto only agreed for emission reductions in a certain time period. so in a first commitment period is what it's called in in treaty lingo, uh, the period between 2008 and 2012. and one of the negotiating tracks is just to get that second and subsequent commitment period it's like okay, you know these countries agreed to reduce by X amount, Uh, by 2012, and then what happens in 2013. So that was one track of the process, and very problematic, obviously, because all of the developed countries that have these obligations really want the US to join them. Mm. And so that's one of the political discussions. The other um, track of the process was, OK, Kyoto is about developed countries, those countries that are historically responsible for the amount of, of greenhouse gases that we have in the atmosphere today. Um, but then there's the rest of the world, and the rest of the world needs to be part of that conversation. And that was a different track of the process. Um, and some of the politics, well, I mean, two main political pieces. One. The developing countries, major developing countries, really wanted to see a second commitment period of Kyoto, um, obligations for developed countries. Uh, The AOSAs, the small island states, really wanted a legally binding agreement that brought everybody into the picture. And um, many developed countries who have Kyoto obligations um, are not really happy to not have the U.S. as part of that commitment and they just want to scrap Kyoto completely
6: mm. Mm.
3: so lots of competing interests ending up in one city at, a, at one period of time exactly um, how did how did you prepare to go to um to Copenhagen um towards, during your fall course in the fall of 2009 was called the road to Copenhagen, but you actually did some work ahead of time um, in the spring of 2009.
2: Sure. So in the spring of 2009, um, I usually teach a class every couple of years called Practical Activism, where students learn um, skills of strategic planning, campaign planning, and then they carry out a campaign and what we realized was everybody you know the students are really focused on Copenhagen even at that point but in order to have movement in Copenhagen and in particular to have a good. US position in Copenhagen you have to influence US policy and you the u.s political scene so in the springtime the work that they did was around um, our main senators Senator Snow and Collins uh, pressing them for um, strong, Um, climate legislation. And then that followed up with um, a real intensive study in the fall of the road to Copenhagen of the negotiations, very much focused on on sort of the text and the content of the international treaty negotiations that were happening in Copenhagen. But uh, that was the framework. And then maybe the students can talk about how they actually use that to to do the stuff that they wanted to do and learn what they wanted to learn to prepare themselves for for Copenhagen.
3: I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to WERU and talk of the towns this morning. Our topic is Reflections After Copenhagen and then Next Steps for Climate Negotiations. In the studio with us are Doreen Stabinski, a faculty member uh, uh, in global environmental politics, Lindsay Britton, Matt Majorna. And Noah Hodgetts is joining us by phone. Um, so uh, Lindsay, you took the course in the spring of uh, 2009. Um, what did you gain from that, that process? What was your focus?
5: Well, I gained a lot of knowledge about media and messaging. Um, that was probably the most helpful for me. Um, that was the place where I needed to work the most on my skills. And I also, I guess, gained a lot of confidence in my ability to campaign and to help people campaign as well. Hmm. And so in Copenhagen, that did help me because there were a lot of youth actions and um, to be able to talk to people about what the message was to -hmm. help them sort of get clarity in what they were aiming for when we, um, I worked on a mitigation paper. And so that was, it was definitely helpful to have that experience of practical activism behind me with that.
3: Tell us more about the mitigation paper.
5: Um, it was just the the youth from the United States um, released a paper, I guess. It was policy goals, but um, it wasn't very specific. It was just overall what we were wanting out of mitigation.
3: So define mitigation, maybe that's the place to start. To What, what does that mean to you?
5: It would be preventing the worst effects of climate change mm-hmm. um, in terms of reducing or uh, limiting the increase in temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius and to have um, so that you protect the countries who are most at risk of sea level rise. Mm-hmm.
3: So, so the experience of putting that or working on that paper and talking with other young people um, about this, that was one of the things that you kind of gained from, those are the skills that you gained from the class. Yeah. How about um, the, the uh, fall course, Matt? You were part of that. Um, how, did, how did that go?
1: Yeah, actually I um I helped plan past this this last winter and in the spring but ended up uh, in Washington DC as it were. Okay. Uh during the fall and so it was in the, you know, heart of it and quite stressful. Uh, really there's lots of people, hundreds sitting there working and trying to figure out how Copenhagen could be a success. And so there's a lot of disappointed people at the end of Copenhagen. The class itself, though, I might turn over to Noah because um, he was in that. Okay, yep. And then we can come back and talk about your Washington experience. I'm sorry.
3: yeah. Noah, tell us a little bit about your participation in the fall class.
4: Sure. Well, I think I kind of had a um, unique kind of position coming into the class because I was one of the a significant number of the students in the class already were fairly familiar with the negotiations, either having taken – global environmental politics the year before or practical activism. So I came into the class in the fall not knowing much, um, but we delved right into the text Um, as we talked about. We delved right into understanding the fundamental issues um, in the 1992 framework convention and in the 1997 Kyoto protocol. um, And we did this, we kind of, you know, we first delved into understanding what these key issues were And then throughout the term, um, groups of students focused on specific issues. I have a real interest in mitigation. Um, I guess one thing that hasn't been said is that, you know, mitigation not only has to do with um, limiting temperature increases, but figuring out ways to lower the increase of greenhouse gas emissions. So we, I was part of a work group on real mitigation, which... Focused on looking at different sectors, say industry, transportation, energy, agriculture, waste, and really looking at kind of what policy decisions at the local and national level could be made that would actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and then we we did this for a couple. Of different, we had work groups on a number of different uh, topics three times throughout the term, and we presented it to our class. Um, and that, I think, definitely gave me a really solid basis for going into Copenhagen and feeling like I had a really, really kind of strong core base of knowledge to understand what was going on in the negotiations and to follow certain issues. I have a passion for it, and so I decided to follow kind of the um, events in Copenhagen that were focused on reducing emissions in the transportation sector. Um, and so, in addition to the actual negotiations, um, the conference also provides a lot of opportunities for um, for meetings about these more specific issues. Um, and so, you know, having that core knowledge allowed me to kind of really participate in these side meetings. Um, and I, all I can say is that I don't think the way the course was designed, this is a lot to Doreen's credit, I don't think I could have been any more prepared going in than I
3: was. Mm. Mm. There probably were some practical details, how in fact did you get to Copenhagen? <laughs> what were some of the practical details that you needed to con- be concerned about? Dorian? Well,
2: uh, buying plane tickets, where were you going to stay? I mean, the students, they booked their hostel in January of 2009 and the conference was in December of 2009. So uh, really being on top of things and trying to figure out where you're going to stay if you know, as well as what ended up happening, over 40,000 people came into Copenhagen um, because they booked so early. They w- had a reasonable uh, transport in between the hostel and, and the convention center. Some people were across the water in Malmo, Sweden. Um, some, many delegates were across the water in Malmo, Sweden because they waited to get their hotel room. So <laughs> so that's that was some of the practical details. The students were quite involved in doing fundraising um, to get themselves there and collective fundraising, which is a really great effort on their part. But I mean, maybe they ought to talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about yeah. that because they were the ones that were really leading that.
3: Yeah. Start out, start out with us, uh, Lindsay, Tell us about some of the practical things that you had to worry about.
2: Uh, well, it was my first time
5: going on a large plane, actually. I'd been on a small plane from Hyannis to Nantucket and that was it. So <laughs> I'd never gone through a large airport and I was more concerned about that and like what might happen to my luggage um, if you know, if they would confiscate my drink that I bought after I'd gone through security, things like that. <laughs> um, and they actually did lose my luggage coming home, but getting there, everything was great.
3: That's great. How about you, Matt? Um, anything practical that you had to kind of think about um, getting there?
1: Yeah, just the logistics were were an absolute nightmare. I was actually it was part of my job in Washington trying to coordinate it uh, for our uh, coalition of about 500 organizations. So trying to book rooms for all of them was was a bit of a headache. Uh, And like Doreen said, there was a massive number of people going to Copenhagen. The city was literally bursting at the seams and uh, people were were pretty stressed out the entire time. Uh, So it was really just the the underground logistics Mm. was, was Crazy. Let
3: me come back then um, to your work in Washington. Tell us a little bit about that. That was with the Climate Action Network. Tell us a little about the organization and what your role was.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, The Climate Action Network is a coalition of about 500 organizations from around the world that are dedicated to reducing the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere to sustainable levels. Um, and they've been around for about 20 years, since the beginning of the negotiations. They're really focused on the United Nations in particular and help coordinate the, the position of these 500 organizations at these negotiations. So these organizations that you've all probably heard of, like Greenpeace, NRDC, Sierra Club, WWF. Um, so it was you know quite an amazing experience. And And what's most incredible to me is how many people Want this not just the people who are working at these organizations, but the general public. They really understand this issue. They really know how important it is, not just for the environment, but for our economy and for security. And uh, the problem, in my opinion, is Washington politics, and it's just the same old story of great ideas going to Washington to die. And um, it's 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 difficult to, to try and deal with but uh... my job was to try and make people heard in the halls of congress and in the halls of the united nations and uh... we certainly did the best we could and uh... we'll keep on doing it until uh... they get the message
6: mm.
3: well, let's turn our attention to what actually happened in, in copenhagen uh, thinking about the big picture um, what, what, you know, you came away um, after, after the experience, you probably disappointed, but um, help listeners understand what actually happened and, and then what didn't happen that you hoped it
1: was. Matt, do you want to start? Sure, so there's two things that really came out of Copenhagen, and they're pretty simple. You know, after two years, it's unfortunate that we only have two things to talk about. Uh, one is a decision to keep negotiating, and that was the most heartbreaking piece. Um, the other is what's called the Copenhagen Accord, and uh, this got a lot of press uh, because when Obama flew into Copenhagen uh, for the you know, last two days of the negotiation, this is what he championed. This is, was, was the peace that he wanted to get out of Copenhagen so that we could say we got something. And um, the Copenhagen Accord wasn't actually approved by the negotiations. It was, quote, unquote, taken note of by the countries there uh, because there was huge disagreement. There were huge problems with the, the Accord. Uh, in particular, the fact that it was negotiated by pretty much the most powerful countries. They shut out the rest of the countries. It was behind closed doors. The final night, they sat up drafting it. Um, and it, it's a nowhere near what we need. Um, and the two things that are in the accord are a little bit of money and a blank table. And this table is essentially where countries can voluntarily decide uh, what sort of emission reductions they want to take on. And then hopefully they'll they'll follow through and and actually make those re- reductions, but it's not legally binding. Um, it's what's called pledge and review, I suppose. This is actually a term that was used quite a bit during the Bush administration of their policy. Um, so again, it's. it's pretty problematic and not based on the science.
3: Hmm. Doreen, I know that one of the things that you watched very closely was the US delegation and and when the president arrived and all of that. Tell us a little bit more about what you saw happening um, um, in terms of the US delegation.
2: Sure. So, I mean, the U.S. delegation and um, I would also add to this the Danish presidency of the meeting were really quite intent on having something come, particularly after Obama announced that he was going to change his plans and he wasn't going to come at the beginning of the meeting, but he was going to come at the end of the meeting. Then, you know, obviously Obama has to arrive. If Obama arrives, something has to come out of the meeting. (laughs) Um, And it was really clear that. Countries weren't getting, there wasn't enough political will there to get something, a meaningful, legally binding outcome of the meeting. Um, And unfortunately, what happened is, as the heads of state started arriving in the middle of the second week, and then, you know, Obama arrives, um, I guess he arrives on Friday, but Hillary Clinton arrives on Wednesday, um, the two-track negotiations all of a sudden grind to a halt and the Danish presidency starts convening these sort of backroom negotiating sessions with a small number of countries, and the U.S. delegation participating in that, and then Obama really coming in and sort of sealing that as, as that was the forum where the deal was going to get made. It was going to get made in a small room with a small number of countries, even though Copenhagen is was a multilateral forum. It was a forum with 180 plus countries. Um, It was Obama's decision to basically say that only a couple of countries matter. So a real significant attack on multilateralism and the idea that we are all in this together, and we all have to agree together, which is the essence of an international treaty. So I mean, unfortunately, this is what the president Um, not only contributed to, but reinforced, and, you know, at the end of the day, the Copenhagen Accord, this piece of paper that that Matt talked about, this three-page piece of of paper, was really agreed by five countries, Mm. Um, four of which are now sort of backing off and not wanting to associate themselves with the Accord because of the political implications of you know, five countries. You know, four countries signing a deal with the U.S. and calling it the agreement on behalf of the globe.
3: Mm. I can imagine there was a number of countries there. Probably you saw some of the delegates who were um, so frustrated by that, by that kind of end run around the process. What, what did you see? What, what did you hear? You you saw things outside the uh, the conference as well as inside the conference. What did you see, Matt?
1: Yes. Uh, these negotiations are kind of funny. You sort of sit through a lot of boring meetings for you know about a week and a half, and then the last two days everybody starts screaming, <laughs> and, and it gets it's, it's pretty entertaining, but also you know kind of frightening because this is you know the world's on, on the line, and these government delegates from these different countries can't get their act together to try and you know, figure this out. And um, there was a lot of a lot of intense emotion uh, the final night, uh, pretty much because of what Obama did and following this accord. Um, they thought they were going to be able to just push it through and you know make make everybody agree with it, but uh, a few countries started to to hesitate and started to realize that this wasn't what they wanted. And um, there's also some politics with you know how the meetings are organized. Um, so there's this chair of the session, and they have to you know point at people and say, you can speak now. And they started skipping people, and, uh, and then people started hammering their fists on tables. Um, and in the end, you know, that's what led to us really not having anything, um, which is unfortunate.
3: Mm-hmm. I'll get some com- comments from Noah about um, what he saw happening there as well, and then we're going to let him go for a while and, and open up the phone line. So, Noah, what did you see happening?
4: Um, I saw happen. what I saw happening is that A lot of the countries, and this is kind of frustrating to me, is that you know this is supposed to be countries coming together and negotiating. What I saw happening was that almost all the countries, and I guess this is how the process is. What I learned about how the process works is that almost all the countries came to the table with bottom-line negotiating positions, and in many cases, those negotiating positions for developed countries there was there was a large, rather there was a large gap between the negotiating. Um, positions for the developed countries and negotiating positions for the developing countries, which you most, of which you could say, a lot of them are more more vulnerable. Especially the small island states are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change in the near term. And so this created this kind of huge gap and didn't leave actually a lot of room in my um, in my mind for actual negotiations. You just had countries saying, "Here's our position. This is what needs to happen." and here's the and here's this other position and so what happened is that you know all the positions through the me, through the all these long boring meetings kind of were on the table but then they kind of ran out of time um to actually really kind of nail down a compromise partly because i don't as much as everybody there was concerned with addressing the issue of climate change they weren't willing to compromise their bottom line positions mm-hmm. um and that's the real question which I think needs to be addressed, um, it's certainly something which I think surprised me um, going into this conference and attending is that how much um, countries' kind of bottom line negotiating positions matter, and that comes from their host governments, and they can't really negotiate beyond that um, but what I do think was what I don't think should be um, under recognized is the fact that we had more people um, countries and um, non government organizations and every group at a conference, there was never there's never been a conference of this ma- of, to my knowledge, there's never been a UN conference of this magnitude before. And so despite um and I think we'll get into this more later, despite the fact that um despite the fact that um the conference did not produce the results that many of us had desired, I think coming out of the conference you do see this kind of focus on needing to address climate change in a way that's never been seen before.
6: Mm.
3: Thanks, Noah. Noah Hodgetts, Uh, we're going to let you go by phone um, at this point and we'll bring you back at the end of the hour. Um, Thanks to to you. Um, I'll remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on uh, WERU, our guests um, talking about reflections after Copenhagen, they were there, and next steps for climate negotiations uh, include uh, Noah Hodgetts, who you just heard, Matt Iona um, who is, uh, h- had experience with the Climate Action Network as an intern in Washington, D.C. Lindsay Britton is a student at College Atlantic as well, and Doreen Stabinski, a faculty member in global, uh, teaches a course in global environmental politics. We are going to open up the phone lines if you've got questions or comments. I've been asking the questions, but you probably have questions too, or comments. Um, 1-866-625-9378. Or locally four six nine zero five zero zero. As we get ready to take um, the calls, um, um, I know that uh, the next thing we want to talk about is additional observations around the summit. But um, I do believe uh, our engineer Amy is uh, getting a call lined up, so we'll wait for that. Um, yes, we have a call. Go ahead with your question or comment. If you just identify your your uh, town that you're calling from, that would be helpful.
0: Good morning. This is Tim Owen, Brooklyn. Um, it's at, at, the longer it takes to get an agreement, the more uh, desperate the measures that we're going to have to take to address the problem are going to be. I and mean, one of the old technologies that's being pushed as a, a solution is nuclear. And I have a, a very simple little uh, math uh, set up with I call it King Tut's nukes. <laughs> now, if we look at if they had started nuclear during King Tut's time, we could have massive numbers of Yucca Mountain equivalents all over the world that we have to guard forever and ever. Now, we're currently getting 8% of our energy from nuclear in the United States, 20% of our our electrical energy, but of our total energy, about 8%. That generates 2,000 tons of high-level rad waste a year. If if it was truly sustainable, we could get 100% of our energy, and that would give us... 25,000 tons per year. Yucca Mountain is designed for 75,000 tons. So that means we would need a new Yucca Mountain every three years. King Tut ruled 3,300 years ago. So that would mean that if we had started in King Tut's time and and gotten a U.S. energy equivalent for that time, we would have 1,100 Yucca Mountains to continue to guard forever and ever and ever and ever. Thanks. I'll listen. Thanks very much for your call
3: and your perspective. We'll take another call, and then we'll see if we can get some comments from our guests. one 625 9378 if you'd like to participate in our conversation. Reflections after Copenhagen, next steps for climate negotiations. Go ahead with your question or comment, please.
6: Hi. Hey, yeah, I'm also calling from Brooklyn. Uh, I wanted to pick up a little bit uh, with a nod to Tim's math, which is certainly impressive and uh, sobering. Uh, to pick up where it seemed like Noah was going, and to, uh, to talk about the the we we were happy in a way when uh there was no significant agreement reached in Copenhagen because we thought well, now we have another couple of years to get something together uh and we need the time so uh w- where do we go next uh I just um I was listening to some people on the radio a little while ago. They were talking about uh, uh, corporate ownership of the, uh, the uh, Internet, and they had uh, begun to develop a, a, a fairly ambitious plan to combat that. And they realized, just as we realized in Copenhagen, that no matter how ambitious the plan that was come up with, uh, unless we could get it by uh, Congress, it wasn't going to do anybody any good and so they uh they uh, backpedaled uh they 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 took a fairly significant backpedal which I would like to suggest that we might talk about a little bit uh and uh decided that really none of these changes that really really have to be made that the people who are all aware need to be made can be made with the people in control of the congress who are in control of the congress at the moment uh and uh they started these these uh Uh, computer reform people, internet reform people, started uh, thinking very seriously about the possibility of a constitutional convention, a new constitutional convention, uh, uh, which would, for example, I'd like to suggest in this case, might make it possible for, by popular mandate of the people for a treaty such as what was passed in Kyoto to be ratified, by the people of a country, of this country particularly, because that's what we're talking about, rather than to leave the, uh, the totally corrupt uh, uh, power centers uh, in charge of the ratification of these things, which don't concern them, they concern us. And we have to admit that I think that we're going... In two separate directions. Now we've got the people and and the interests of the people on one hand, and we've got the the corporate power structure and in the interest of the power structure on the other hand. And they're not speaking the same language. And to speak to the corporate power structure in the interests of the people is, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it nicely, if peeing in the wind. Uh, uh, so that I think we really need to investigate the the, the, the possibility of reworking this Constitution, which was set up here. There's a movement afoot uh, for this to happen from many, many different sectors, because in many different sectors, people are coming against the same stone wall, and it's called the U.S. Congress. And uh, if we could realize that we're all talking about the same big problem and focus at least with a half of our... uh, 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 individual group uh, transformational, reformational energy on the big problem, which is redoing the the, uh, the ground rules so that if we could even figure out what made sense to do, we could manage to do it. I think it's very important to spend a lot of time working on that. It's not going to help to talk to Senator Snow. Okay, I'm thank sorry. You. Uh,
3: thank you for your, 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 your views. We'll see if we can get some comments from our guests here. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, two things, you know, h- how do we um, practically, the, the mitigation piece, um, uh, the, the one, one guest said some people are talking about using nuclear power as a mitigation. Um, and then, you know, how do we make treaties in the United States? Um, do, we, do we need to, to think about a, a change in how we do this work? Because it seems like the people and, and the and the elected officials are on two different courses. Let's talk about the, the, the Congress first, Doreen. <laughs> Where do you see that... Um, that, that going, are you seeing the same frustrations as our, as our caller um, uh, spoke of?
2: Well, I mean I think that there's quite a lot of frustration around the country um, on climate change. There's certainly a huge grassroots movement not just in the United States but around the world that knows that Yeah, we need, this is a really serious problem confronting humanity, and we need bold action now. And uh, Copenhagen was a real clear signal that governments, particularly developed country governments, those folks who hold the most power in the world are not really interested in bold action um, or change. I mean, you know, we see this in Obama's State of the Union address, where he feels the need to mention clean coal and nuclear technologies that are not going to, um, they're they're not the solution to the problem that we're confronting. And so, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of bold thinking. I think a lot of, um, you know, major initiatives for change Uh, need to be on the table, need to be debated and discussed. Um, And in the United States, I mean, clearly Congress is the problem, the president is the problem. No matter how much mobilization we have had in the lead-up to Copenhagen, it wasn't enough to shake the U.S. position. And I think it means, you know, more action, not less at the local level. I think it means, you know, things like the transition towns, initiatives where people at the grassroots are saying, if our leaders aren't going to show the way, we're going to show the way, and we're going to make the leaders follow us. And so, I mean, yeah, I I welcome sort of any and all of those really radical forward-thinking initiatives that get us out of this, you know, massive entrenched mess that we have, in term, you know, with respect to sort of corporations, nuclear and coal in particular, having, you know, a stranglehold on, on climate politics in mm-hmm. the United States. Lindsay or Matt, any,
3: anything to add to um, the... What, your your reactions or, or comments from the from our caller.
1: Sure, uh, I agree with you completely, Tim, um, on the nuclear point, and thanks for the math and King Tut analogy. Um, I think that's great, and and highlights the exact problem that I see with nuclear as well. Um, it's such a difficult issue trying to come to a compromise on uh, climate change in in Congress, um, if that's the route we're going, um, because. The, Nuclear and clean coal have become that compromise unit. And like Doreen said, they aren't going to be the solution. We need wind, solar, uh, low impact hydro and geothermal. And um, those can get us all the way if we invest in them now. And uh, there might be some transition fuels uh, along the way. Um, but but that's really the direction we need to go. Um, and just a really quick point about Congress and and them being the, the primary problem, the primary roadblock, brock, block. I couldn't agree more. Um, and the U.S. administration, as it were, actually couldn't agree more as well. So to give them a really quick bit of credit, um, so we don't don't just you know bash them the whole time, this is what their entire position is based on, is essentially the fact that they don't think they can get anything ambitious through the Senate right now. And I tend to disagree with them. I think if, if Obama and his administration took a more leadership role and stance on climate, we could get something more ambitious. But they've sort of gone... Uh, you know the easier route um, just to try and, and work within the current political context. And Todd Stern and Jonathan Pershing, who are currently the two people leading on international climate in the United States, they're uh, Obama's go-to people. Uh, their entire plan is based around getting something through the Senate. And um, they, they really don't have hope, high hopes for, for what they can get through. So I, I agree with Doreen that we really need to, to amp it up uh, locally and really make our voices heard
3: we have another call let's go ahead and take that call go ahead with your question or comment please
7: good morning this is yo in Tremont There's something about this debate which strikes me as deeply skewed and it speaks to political will people talk about war as if it were an immutable force of nature and they talk about climate change as if it's something that man created and it's something that man has to do something about. Well, war is the greatest generator of greenhouse gases. Although NASCAR burns a million gallons of fuel a year, the Marines in Afghanistan alone burn 800,000 gallons of fuel a day. On the second hand, the forces at work in climate change are so immeasurably larger than anything man has ever done that there is nothing that man can do to prevent climate change and there are much more serious pollution problems than co2 and they involve things like plastic and radionucleides and toxic chemicals and heavy metals and all that kind of thing so, um... you know it may be sad to think that we're going to have greater storms but life is going to be imperiled by the toxins. So I, I want to just mention that if people really are concerned about climate change, the first and most important thing to do is end war as policy. Thank you.
3: Thank you for call one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. As we talk about reflections after Copenhagen and next steps for climate change, you may want to respond to this caller if you'd like. And also, I'd like to to move us to um, so where are we now and and what's ahead in terms of climate change, given the f- the fact that things didn't happen as you had hoped um, um, in Copenhagen. But any responses to the caller at this point?
2: Sure. I mean, I uh, I'm I'm with you there. And war. Uh, being just a scourge on humanity that we should all of us be working to end. Um, uh, and but the the example of the 800,000 gallons of fossil fuels that we're burning per day in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, sort of a small tragedy of war compared to the loss of life and et cetera. Um, it also speaks to the fact that our generally our economy is organized around fossil fuels. And I do disagree with the caller that there's nothing that we can do to change global warming. Um, because the planet will continue to heat up as we put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, um, those anthropogenic, those human caused, the human contributions of greenhouse gases could... Cause if we continue on a business as usual scenario, could heat the planet up to six degrees um, Celsius. That's that's average temperature rise. Um, in places closer to the poles, we're talking about temperature rise. that's even greater than that, with implications, you know, from sea level rise, as Lindsay pointed out, which threaten the existence of of um, countries, small island states in the Pacific and the Caribbean to uh, changing weather patterns that really will have significant impacts, not just on places where, you know, we hear about faraway places like Africa and, and India, but certainly significant impacts in the United States in terms of how much food we can produce and where we produce food. I mean, the Corn Belt will no longer be the Corn Belt if we continue on with business as usual. So those consequences, I think, are really Uh, very severe even for those of us in the United States who won't probably won't suffer the brunt of climate change the way that uh, Inhabitants of small island states will and in fact we can change um, our trajectory by decarbonizing our economy, by recreating an economy that isn't based on fossil fuel consumption and, and emission of those greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And by decarbonizing our economy and reducing our, uh, eliminating uh, eventually our reliance on fossil fuels, we eliminate that, um, that uh uh, foreign policy uh, problem of being really dependent on, on countries in the Middle East and all of the politics around the Middle East leading to uh, conflict, um, we we eliminate that need for um, involving ourselves in, in those fossil fuel related conflicts.
3: So, as we think about um, individual action, there are many places that people go can do that and and um, we are doing that even if our government policy does not uh, lead us in that in that direction of individually making those choices, communities making those choices um, but what you know what what do you expect out of of continuing negotiations what what uh, happens next? Um, I understand that this uh, Matt you referred to a um, um, a sheet of, of paper um, where people are signing up for their uh, proposed um, reductions. That is, is is unfolding now. We, we saw some um, changes or some, some new uh, figures put in, into that. W- where do we go next?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the sheet of paper where countries get to, you know, decide what, sort of emission targets sound good to them at the time, um, is currently underway. That's the Copenhagen Accord, uh, the one that the U.S. is is heavily promoting um, as the solution that they've come up with, the best available solution. Um, and like Doreen said earlier, it, a lot of the other countries who were originally a part of it are starting to backpedal. Uh, the U.S. has put uh, their numbers on the table, and it's you know it, it, sort of in the range that we were thinking, kind of what Congress is, is going towards, which is about a 4 or 5% reduction uh, below 1990 levels by 2020, um, instead of the 45 percent reductions that small islands say is necessary to keep them alive, um, because there are entire countries at stake here. Which is what boggles my mind that it's you know not a bigger issue that these countries are literally going to be wiped off the map due to what you know our country's doing, the emissions that we create, and uh, it's just not rising rising above the fold in the in the mainstream media. Um, and uh but but what we can do i mean there's there's some really tangible things we can do um involving yourself locally there's so many grassroots g- groups in in every city now um that that are mobilizing around this that are interested in this uh, just talking to your neighbors i'm sure they they have their own opinions on it and talking to all of your neighbors i mean it's it's mm. not about finding the people who have the same opinion of you it's uh as you it's it's about talking to everybody and, and getting all sides of the story and figuring out where everybody's coming from and uh, then trying to come up with, with a solution from there because this, this needs to be a bipartisan issue, and it, and it really can be. Um, the fact that it's been so politicized, I think, is the worst thing that's happened um, in the course of this whole climate change issue uh, because it's not a political issue, in my opinion. It's, it's something that matters to all of us and, and can help all of us if we address it the correct way.
3: Mm. How about you, Lindsay? Where do you see this going? What, what do you think people ought to be thinking about?
5: Well, right now... My concern would be to pressure our senators. That's what I've been working on Um, since I took practical activism in the spring. I do feel like having uh, moderate Republican senators is very important um, to work to get them to change their position on climate change, to be more ambitious in our reductions. We've seen that with Senator Collins. She originally, in the spring, was saying that we needed a 70% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, below 2005 levels by 2050, and she's actually changed that um, to 80%. So that's very important um, to keep working at that.
3: So recognizing that when, um, you know, good, good people think about these things, they might change their mind. Yeah, good. Noah Hodges is back with us on the phone. Uh, anything to add to this uh, in terms of thinking about what was, what was and what was not accomplished at Copenhagen and, and where do we go from here?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've kind of said my piece already about what was not accomplished. I think, I think going forward, um, we really need to re-examine um, how effective the current UN process is um, I think recognize that a lot of this, despite the fact that this is a global issue and needs to be debated and dealt with at the the, um, international level, is also a lot of the changes which are actually going to make a difference are going to happen at the local level, and so I really think it then becomes an issue of really um, getting people to understand how it's going to how climate change is going to affect them in the short and long term. and I think that we can do some things um, to kind of get more people besides the environmentalists um, involved with this. Um, you know, I think that trying to, sell, um, trying to sell the issue as being an opportunity to create new jobs um, in the clean energy sector is one way to do that. Um, another way to do that is to, you know, try to get more citizens kind of involved at the local level. Um, you know, making their towns greener. Um, in maine, um there is a movement to make towns cool communities, um which they do by um, having their towns sign on and agree to the provisions of the u s. mayoral climate change agreement, um which basically says that we're going to agree to do these certain things to reduce our emissions. So I think really bringing it back local um, may actually be a way to get more people involved. I think, it's i think part of the problem to date has been that to a lot of people it's a very kind of abstract issue just up there at the international level and the idea that oh we can't do anything local anything really to make a difference um and i don't really think that's true and i think i think we are actually seeing that change which is a good thing
3: mm. I'll I'll, uh, turn it back to you um, in just a minute Noah to to get some final comments Um, Noah's uh, comments before um, we let him go had to do with the the notion of positions versus uh, what I would call interests Um, we have an interest in in a planet that provides, um, you know, food and shelter and, and uh, kind of a, a living for us as well as for the, for the, for the um, non-human elements of that. Were interests talked about <laughs> in uh, Copenhagen or was it just positions? What do you think?
1: It really depends on the country. Uh, for the United States, it was it was entirely based on position. For a lot of the uh, you know countries with massive bureaucracies, it was position-based. Uh, but for the countries who are really going to feel this, Africa group, the small islands, um, it was very much interest-based in, in that they were just talking about the moral responsibility, the moral need, the moral obligation um, to basically safeguard their survival. Because mm-hmm. um, this is what it's about for them, and this was you know kind of... The key phrase that they wanted to get across is it's about survival for them. Um, this isn't just some you know abstract concept. They're they're already feeling the impacts, um, and I think positions versus interests and and versus what's needed really instead of just interests is is the key point. So I'm glad Noah Noah brought that up, and um, the United States and other developed countries I think really need to get get past these abstract political realities that they think exist and start looking at the physical and scientific realities that exist um, because you can't negotiate with science. Mm.
3: Mm. Well, I'll, I'll give each of you a chance to um, talk about your, your hopes. Um, um, given your experience of uh, preparing for going to Copenhagen, seeing the results, what are your hopes? And uh, maybe uh, start with Lindsay. Lindsay Britton.
5: Um, well, I would hope to get a treaty... Sometime very soon, um, that's fair, ambitious, and binding, which we didn't get out of Copenhagen. I'd really hope for that out of Copenhagen. Um, I don't know if I have much reason to be hopeful, but I am. Mm-hmm. So that's my biggest thing that I would like to see.
3: Okay, and Noah Hodges?
4: Um I think I'd kind of second what Lindsay's saying. Um, also with the, with the caveat that um, realizing that Creating a fair, ambitious, and binding treaty um, may not be the most realistic thing, even though that's what we all want. Um, you know, seeing how difficult to get anywhere close to that co- Copenhagen, that at a minimum, we see um, kind of more of a focus on the core issues um, and getting beyond this kind of putting putting behind us kind of this idea. As I think Matt touched on, that climate change is a kind of political issue. And that really kind of getting, kind of boiling down to the base of the argument that climate change affects everybody um, and that everybody can be involved with this. Got to um, and to that end, the national involvement by all governments um, in a serious, comprehensive way um, internationally.
3: Okay, thanks. And Doreen, Doreen Stabinsky, your hopes? Um, and, and you you know that there, or you, you've told me that there's um, a, a Mexico meeting where this will get revisited
2: sure i mean there's well there's meetings every year they're (laughs) called conferences of the parties and the next one is in in mexico in december of two thousand and ten it's the next opportunity for countries to uh... Well, to take the next step, maybe to, to come up with some legally binding language, maybe not. My hope, to go back to your question, is that the failure at the international level really galvanizes action at the local level. And I mean, I think that that's a message for the listeners, is that there's so much we can do and that there's so much we have to do at the local and the state level in order to give the political will to our leaders when they, when they get to meetings like Mexico to do the right thing.
1: And last word to, to Matt, your hopes? Well, we have a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of great people working on it, so I just hope that everybody keeps doing what they're doing and more people get involved to try and change this.
3: Great. Thanks so much to all of you. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Bombing House Highland Music Recording. Thanks to again to our guests in the studio, Doreen Sabinsky, faculty member in global uh, environmental politics, Lindsay Britton, Matt, I'm going to say it right this time, I think, Myrana. Yeah, nice job. <laughs> And Noah Hodgetts, all students from College of Atlantic who participated in the in the road to Copenhagen. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Thanks to Amy Brown and uh, for engineering our program. And stay tuned for on the wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns. Wishing you a good morning.
1: Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at mainecf.org.